It's good to be back here again. As uh, some of you know, I uh, had a little trouble last week with voice and with a cough and wasn't able to be here. I'm very grateful for Bill Tessie to come and present to you the ministry of the Gideons. Um, Bill, you probably know this already. Bill is one of the guys here who is actually uh, an evangelist. Many of us, all of us, as uh, the Lord has instructed us, are required to do the work of an evangelist, to spread the gospel, to take it uh, every opportunity that we have. But some are gifted with evangelism. Bill is one of those guys. And, of course, Gideon matches him perfectly as he goes out. But if you've been with Bill for five minutes in public, Bill will find somebody to witness to and be in the middle of that. And so I'm very grateful to have guys like he and Ben and, and others who are evangelists at heart and do that work and, and, uh, and represent the Lord so well. But very grateful for him as he filled in. If you would, if you've not been with us, we're in a study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. And that is, we've entitled that Instructions for the Church, Leading, Teaching, Equipping. And so it's a verse-by-verse study through. We've just been, just been able to get started on it. We've uh, did a lot of background to uh, the letters to help us understand them. We're about five verses in. So if you haven't missed a huge amount, you can catch up with those things online in uh, Spotify or on YouTube. But this is a verse-by-verse study through the pastoral epistles. Paul uh, penned a number of personal letters to men who were his true sons in the faith. And he pinned to them to help them and encourage them and direct them in the oversight of the first century New Testament church. And so you may well imagine that these letters are just as important today as they were in the first century because we're still in the church age. And so everything that's mentioned here is just as important as it was when Paul penned it. And we move through, as I've said, five verses, and in doing so, we've pulled some important principles that have flowed out of Paul's statements And we have seen these verses have as a common theme, and that common theme is doctrine, both false and true, and those who teach it. And concern for sound doctrine is not limited to the first century or our modern era. In fact, faithful teaching has always been a concern of those who lead the church rightly. A couple thoughts for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I often quote, said that teaching the Word is such an awesome task that a godly man, quote, shrinks from it. He goes on to say, nothing but the overwhelming sense of being called in compulsion should ever lead anyone to preach. The deep sense of unworthiness and fear of such an awesome responsibility is the potential for true usefulness. Jones, he says, as he listens If the man gives me the sense that though he is inadequate himself, he is handling something which is very great and very glorious, and if he gives me some dim glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God, the love of Christ my Savior, the magnificence of the gospel, if he does that, he says, I am his debtor and I'm profoundly grateful to him. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Except that's not what we find often. A missionary, William Taylor writing in his book, The Preacher and His Model, tells the story of a self-sacrifice that makes this point. It's a legend that there was a Chinese potter who was ordered to produce a great work for the emperor, and he tried to make it, but he wasn't successful. And at length, and driven to total despair, he threw himself into the furnace with the pot he was trying to make. And the effect of his self-emulation on the pottery, which was in the fire, was that it came out to be the most beautiful piece of porcelain ever known. And the The point of the legend, as he quoted it, Taylor says, quote, in the Christian ministry, 
It's self-sacrifice that gives real excellence and glory to our work. When self in us, he says, disappears and only Christ is seen, then will be our highest success alike in our own lives and in the moving of our fellow men. We get near to the secret of Paul's greatness when we hear him say, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, and in the measure in which we imbibe his spirit, we shall rise to his efficiency. A well-known preacher and evangelist and author and theologian John Stott put it this way, I cannot help wondering if this may not be why there are so few preachers God is using today. There are plenty of popular preachers, but not many powerful ones, who preach the word in the power of the Spirit. He says, is it because the cost of such preaching is too great? It seems the only preaching God honors, through which his wisdom and power are expressed, is the preaching of a man who's willing in himself to be both a weakling and a fool. God not only chooses weak and foolish people to save, but weak and foolish preachers through whom to save them, or at least preachers who are content to seem weak and seem foolish in the eyes of the world. And we're not always willing to pay that price. We're constantly tempted to covet a reputation as men of learning or men of influence, to seek honor in academic circles and compromise our old-fashioned message in order to do so and to cultivate personal charm or forcefulness so as to sway people committed to our care, end quote. There's anything that describes the habitual habits of most megachurches today, that's it, isn't it? In Stott's book, Between Two Worlds, he said, quote, word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of his name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching, for preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. He's noted as saying from time to time during his ministry, quote, seldom, if ever, do I leave the pulpit without a sense of partial failure, a mood of penitence, and a cry to God for forgiveness and a resolve to look to him for grace to do better in the future. Alistair Begg, a well-known preacher today up in Ohio, says, there is a way to preach the Bible unbiblically. You can use the Bible as the springboard for all kinds of ideas, can't you, he says. Look around in here and find something that fits your fancy and then launch a rocket off of it. And people say, that was amazing, wasn't it? Remarkable what he got out of that. Well, of course, Begg says it's because he put it in there before he got it out of there. That describes a lot of what goes on. I think this is precisely Paul's emphasis as we get into this section of Scripture. And so even though we have many bad examples which align perfectly with the fears of these teachers of the world, there are still those who understand the profound importance of Paul's direction to Timothy at Ephesus. So read, if you would, look in your copy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And we've marked, as we said, some important principles throughout our time in the letter. And in our introduction, we saw the very first one. It's difficult, number one, to identify false teachers and identify false teaching. That's not an easy thing to do because they're very practiced at it and they are uh, telling the very lies that Satan himself has has contrived, and so these kinds of things are difficult. And we saw Timothy was ready to leave. Paul says, please stay, because there's a lot to do, and I've got some things for you to do. Now look at verse 3, if you would. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, he says, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. So he threw with the introduction 
of the letter and immediately gives Timothy an encouragement to stay. You can see Timothy probably ready to bail. This is not an easy assignment. We've got false teachers in the church. They're in leadership. Timothy's here, and he's a fairly young man, and this looks daunting. And so that was our second uh, um, principle that we pulled out of there. Number two, divergence in teaching from the clear meaning of Scripture is never allowed. You instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. We saw it's a very broad statement that covers a wide variety of divergence from Scripture. And he says, and look at verse 4, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. So here's Timothy is told by Paul to identify and put an end to this whole idea of introducing new things to tantalize the people. As Alistair Begg said just now, use the Bible as the springboard. Launch something off there and people wonder, wow, how did he get that out of there? Well, he got it out of there because he put it in there before he started. That's the thing you're supposed to avoid. And, of course, the question comes up, well, what's wrong with either of those things? What's wrong with spicing it up? What's wrong with making it super interesting? What's wrong with kind of pulling people in with, with uh, exaggerated statements and, 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 uh, and crafty ways of presenting it and dumbing it down? Well, he says this. Look at the rest of the passage. Which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. There is the stewardship, we understand. The administration of God is a stewardship. That's the word stewardship, actually, and we looked at that. And it's supposed to be carried out in the pulpit. It's a trust from God's calling to the one who's called to do it. So you don't get the opportunity just to do whatever you want to do, to walk around here and kind of exaggerate things and make yourself look like a rock star and all this. This is not what pastoral teaching is supposed to look like from the pulpit. And, and leaders who teach like this short-circuit the main thing the church is supposed to do. This is supposed to be the main thing that preachers do. Bad examples here do not carry it out. The main job of faithful ministers, as we saw, and Timothy being left here by Paul to correct this trend going on in Ephesus of a few in leadership who are obscuring, misdirecting the faithful discharge of God's administration of these truths of faith. In getting off base and doing the kinds of things they're doing, they're missing the main thing they're supposed to do, and it takes the church off track. So dressing it up, adulterating it, handling it in a crafty way. These are passages in Scripture we've looked at already. Speculating, that's our word here, produce in the people confusion, endless questions and wranglings, and immersing themselves in things that don't matter. Now look at verse, uh, verse 5. And we've seen in our opening illustrations, faithful teaching of the biblical text is geared to produce, look at verse 5, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, we looked at the first two uh, quite at length, and so um, I don't want to go back over those because they're very, very important, and it's something that we want to make sure that we, we cover. Just, just because if you haven't been here, it's very important. Love from a pure heart. That's that agape word. That's love as a verb. That's intentional action to minister to other people, and a pure heart is what you get when you come in repentant faith to the Lord. So the heart, which does acts of love to people, is part of the administration of proper teaching. You're going to produce a pure heart in people. The second was a good conscience. We looked at that at length, and we've looked at it before. That's that internal monitoring device that you have in your heart that tells you and questions what you're doing. God has given it to everybody, according to Romans chapter 2. It can be misinformed over time, or it can be calloused. It can be seared, where it won't work anymore, and it won't tell you the right information. But sound teaching from the Word of God 
on a regular basis, informs the conscience correctly. So when you go and, and you have a moral dilemma, you have a situation in your workplace, you go and you have something going on in your family, you have an understanding of how you're supposed to respond correctly. Sound teaching provides that. You see how important staying on sound doctrine is? If you're not on sound doctrine, you're doing these other kinds of things, you're not producing love from a pure heart, you're not rightly informing a conscience. Seriously, very, very important. And the last time we closed out with a sincere faith. Because you don't have to live very long to recognize that the way some people live has no relationship to the faith they declare with their lips, right? I mean, we even are like that sometimes. We're hypocritical, aren't we? Sometimes the only person who knows that you're saved at the end of the day is the Lord because of the way that you lived. This is what you want to avoid. And sound teaching helps us to do better at that. Sanctification takes over. It begins to do a work on the flesh. And so we want to know what sincere faith is. You get that from sound doctrine. Faithful teachers who don't God, they don't manipulate it, they don't use it craftily, they don't spice it up, they don't freelance it, all things that Paul says you're not allowed to do, make it more attractive, whatever, will be able to make clear what sincere faith means. It's a faith that's really, here it is, genuine. At 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, look there if you would as we move into our next section. Verse 6 says, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This is not a new conversation. He's returning now to the problem at hand. Remember, he, he said what sound teaching is supposed to produce. He starts with, make sure you tell these men to stop freelancing the Word of God Stop spicing it up. Stop, stop uh, uh, throwing out things that just exacerbate questions and all kinds of conflict. Stop doing that. Then he said, you're supposed to have sound doctrine, pure heart. Uh, you're supposed to have sincere faith, a good conscience. Then he comes back. So he's come back to this negative thing here, and he talks about those who are teaching falsely. For some when it says straying, at to, at o, it's a compound verb. O is a negative prefix. Uh, stokos is a mark. Some people, he says, and this is only used in the pastoral epistles. And it's a, if you're an outdoorsman, uh, if you're a bow hunter, if you uh, use firearms, you understand this. Missing the mark. That's the idea. Missing the target. Some men, by straying from these things, what does that mean? Simplifying the word, manipulating it, using it craftily, spicing it up, adulterating it, freelancing it, making it more attractive. Some men are straying from these things. They're straying from the most important things. What is it? Sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart, obviously. Not staying with the Word of God, they're going to miss those three things. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, there's a number of good illustrations we can find. And I'm going to use these because the Bible explains the Bible. So later on, he talks to Timothy in verse 6, chapter 6. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter, and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, verse 21, some has professed and thus, here's our word, gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So he says, avoid people who have worldly chatter, empty chatter, and opposing arguments. In other words, arguing for argument's sake, always having to be the devil's advocate, you know, pulling up another option, which just ends up being endless arguments that just strays from the truth. It's falsely called knowledge. And some have professed that and gone astray. Grace be with you. 2 Timothy 2.16, again, uh, our word 
He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Again, look how he states that. For it will lead to further ungodliness. It doesn't help you. It's not making the church more godly. It's not making the church more spiritual. Arguing for argument's sake, being the devil's advocate, throwing out other, uh, other options. Paul says that's not part of what goes on in the church. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, he says, are Hymenaeus. And, and we now understand why Paul had to put him out. We looked at that earlier. And then another guy who embraced the same false doctrine, Philetus. Verse 18, men who have our word gone astray, missed the mark, missed the target from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they have set the faith of some. So they're teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Christ has come and called the dead up. And so they're missing the mark, missing the correct target. What's the target? These things. What are these things? Verse 5, the administration of God, the goal of our instruction, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So they missed the marks, and these people have not only substituted speculation for God's instruction, but they've also wandered away from a concern for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And they should have known these things. And Paul spent three years as the pastor of this church. They had heard sound doctrine. It's not like they hadn't already heard it. And so there's this implied resistance then to what they knew. Because, and listen, not having it right is bad, okay? Because the job of somebody who's teaching is to have it right. That's the main job of a steward. But it's particularly bad if you won't change. See, that's what we have here in Timothy. Remember Apollos, it's a great example of not having it right and then changing. Apollos from Acts 18. It says, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Mark it, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so, Priscilla and Aquila hear him with incomplete doctrine. He's talking about the baptism of repentance, and not the baptism of faith. And so, a washing of, uh, this outward of washing of, uh, of uh, deeds that dis are displeasing to the Lord. This is not the way uh, uh, that they, he was supposed to teach. And so he, um, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, incomplete doctrine. They take him aside, and then they instruct him correctly, and he goes on from there preaching it correctly. And then in the very next chapter in Acts, Paul comes to Ephesus, and he corrects the same thing there among the disciples. So again, not having it right is very bad, because that's the main job of a steward, but it's particularly bad if you won't change. And that's the problem here in our passage. It wouldn't change. And we know that because Paul has said he had to put Hymenaeus and Alexander out already. He had to put them out of the church because they wouldn't change. Now look back at verse 6 of our passage. He says, For some men, straying from these things, so we know what that is, mark this, turned aside to fruitless discussion. So in the vacuum created by missing the mark of sound doctrine, something always happens. Mata yologea. Mata is vain or idle or useless, and logos is words. So again, and, and I think this is important, this, this, uh, how this works its way through. They've turned aside, aorist passive indicative. They have turned themselves aside. Again, which indicates a willfulness, and that's number eight in our principle of discernment. Again, from the negative side, it flows out of this passage. The willful act market of excluding sound doctrine will always include another willful act. What's that? turning aside to useless words. And, I mean, there's a dozen anecdotal evidences that we could pull up right now. Is it not? Is there not? As soon as you begin to hear something besides exegetical teaching from the Word of God, 
that goes through verse by verse and book by book. And you just see the, the minister up there kind of winging it and topical and just kind of launching rockets off of whatever passage he wants to lock, knock off of. That's precisely what happens as soon as you depart from sound teaching. Idle words. And that certainly seems to be the pattern today, a very important point. There's an intentionality and a manipulation of the word. The Holy Spirit carries Paul along to call it vain words, all of it. It's all vain words. And we're going to see a lot of varied examples of these vain words throughout our study of the pastoral epistles. They always turn themselves to it. Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 is a good example. He says, for the time will come when they, that's, that's uh, believers, or those who call themselves such, will not endure sound doctrine. The time's going to come, Paul says. And, and we looked at the goal of sound doctrine, right? Sound doctrine is what? Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. It's going to come a time in the church where people in the church will tire of that. They'll tire of sound doctrine, they'll tire of verse-by-verse types of teaching that teaches us how to live and how to function in the church, teaches us to repent and a lifestyle of repentance. Those kind of things begin to fall on their ears very heavily and they get tired of all of that. And what do they want to do? Want to have their ears tickled. So they want to hear something that makes them feel nice. They want to hear some platitude that makes them feel good about themselves, right? Some good thing God's going to do for them. Whatever it is, there's all kinds of manipulations of that, false teaching, um, all kinds of, of uh, foolishness and manipulation and fruitless discussion. It, it takes all different kinds of forms. They want to have their ears tickled so they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. There'll be plenty of guys who want to do that and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss a God of their imagination. That's really what it is, right? Jesus Christ, my own personal Savior. Whatever I want to take from Him, I'll take, and whatever I don't want to take, I can reject because it's my own personal Jesus, right? So turn themselves away. These are the people who attend churches and not lead, but attend. And as long as there are other options, people will choose them because the vacuum of sound teaching doesn't stay empty very long. And we have a good example of that in verse 7. Look there if you would. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertion. And the law here has to do with the Mosaic law. And we talked about that a little earlier. And as we said, they're just kind of picking and choosing out of the law. It's not sound doctrine because it's just one example in verse 6 and, and vain words and fruitless discussions, right? It's not sound doctrine, just kind of picking and choosing and doing what they want and saying what they want. Verse 4 says it's myths and endless genealogies. And in this example, they don't understand what they're saying in general, and they don't understand what they think they're confident in proclaiming. They don't understand either of those things. They confidently make pro- proclamations, and they don't understand any of it. They want to be teachers, though, but it isn't because they want to know the law It isn't because they want to know God. It isn't because they care about uh, people. It is that they want the prestige of being recognized as a teacher of the law. That's it. See, They are in the church. They want the prestige. They want the prominence. They want all the stuff that goes along with that. See, they weren't content with teaching people the truth because they departed from it. And like today, they're proud of that. See, They wanted like Diotrephes in 3 John 9, who wants to be first among them and does not accept what we say. They want the same thing that Jesus exposes the Pharisees as really wanting. What is that? Matthew chapter 23, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. So they look right on the outside. They look holy. They look spiritual. They look like they're doing it. 
They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in synagogues. They want to make sure people recognize them. They want to be the rock star. They want to be the important person. They want people to say, oh yeah, that's that guy. You know, he does this and whatever. And respectful greetings in the marketplace. They want people to recognize them and give them the respect that they want. And being called rabbi by men, that's what they're really after, see? False teachers, those who have fruitless discussions, those who depart from sound doctrine, they really just want recognition. They want lots of books with their names on them, lots of people in the back writing the epilogue, making sure that they look good and they, you know, they, can, they, can, progress, they can project out there uh, a great image, right? But James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Martin Lloyd-Jones had it right, didn't he? And John Stott. There's a terror, really, in your own heart as you go to teach the Word of God. Because you've got to get this right. This is not one of the options that you just kind of wander around there. Maybe you get it, maybe you don't. Or you come up there ill-prepared, and then you just kind of wander around the passage, and you don't ever hit on the things that it's talking about. The one who really understands the whole job of a teacher understands there are many ways that his ministry will be evaluated. Remember, as I told you before, as I tell all young teachers, all young preachers, there's only one person in this audience that you should be concerned about, and you won't be able to see him, but he says that whether two or more are gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. That's the person you should be most concerned about, because that's the living word. And you're teaching his own words to the people he shed his blood to buy. So this is a very, very important issue here. There's a lot of ways your ministry is going to be evaluated. And that should strike terror in the heart of those who aspire the office, as we saw in our opening illustrations. It's not a place for people. It's not a place for people who want to have a reputation. And when he says, you know, look back at verse 7, they make confident assertions. See that? Paul's criticizing confident speech as if that were inappropriate, okay? Because in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, he uses the same word to demand confidence of Titus in his teaching. It's not bad to be confident if you're going verse by verse. That's exactly what it means. What does it mean by what it says? And how does that apply to me? What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? So Paul's rather criticizing false teachers' failure to understand that about which they spoke so confidently. Thus, incompetence and error are combined then in them, along with pride and worldliness and a bunch of other things we're going to see in a moment. And there are some great illustrations, again, of Paul correcting these types of things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 he says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these guys are still wrapped up in the food and the drink laws. See, it's precisely what's going on in Ephesus, kind of picking and choosing in the Old Testament. That's going to make you spiritual. That's going to bring salvation. These are the things that you need to be doing. And, uh, and so they're wrapped up in Old Testament feast days and Sabbath requirements, and they don't know the, uh, that those things all pointed to Christ. Another example from Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many walk, he says, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Man, he just wraps it up right there, doesn't he? He captures the attitude of false teachers in a paragraph. And that's another, I think, great example of the purpose of turning away, and it, it's our ninth principle of discernment. Remember, it's a full turning away. You turned away from sound doctrine and turned towards foolish speaking. And the whole thing is from the negative. Useless words have as an underlying objective 
self, and the world. That's exactly what Paul says in Philippians, in Philippians 3, right? Their appetite is their God. Glory is what they want, but that's their shame, and they set their mind on earthly things. That, that's precisely the issue. As soon as you move away from sound doctrine, you are on this very slippery slope towards this whole self, self thing. It's more important for you to make a name for yourself. It's not love from a pure heart. It's love of self. It's not a good conscience. Why? Because the conscience has been seared and their teaching is not helping anyone's conscience inform them correctly. It's not a sincere faith. It's unredeemed, sophisticated, materialistic, humanistic worldview that's just promoting itself. Now look, look forward again, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Again, we looked at this just a moment ago, but let's look at the rest of it because it really kind of fills in the gaps for us and now that we have this understanding of our passage. I'm not sure you have the right one up there, so we may not. Um, I'll just give you what you need to know, okay? Uh, verse 1 of chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Look there if you would. Um, just leave it if you would. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Turn with me. I don't think we have the right one transferred over. Verse 1 says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away. See where we are in 1 Timothy 4.1? Later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Who are they speaking through? They're speaking through demons, aren't they? Speaking through false teachers are demon doctrine. When, when you depart from sound doctrine, you start doing whatever you want, start saying whatever you want, you're just speaking the falseness that comes from demons. This is a very clear uh, explanation of that. Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, as we just talked about, right? Not a pure conscience, not a clear, uh, good conscience, but seared. Men who forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God, verse 4, is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. So they're telling him, you know, avoid these kinds of things. Make sure you don't eat this. Make sure you don't eat that. Make sure you celebrate this. Make sure you don't do this. All these kinds of legalistic kinds of picking and choosing out of the Old Testament. Paul says, listen, you don't have any of this right. For it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. See, point these things out, he says to Timothy. Make sure they understand. This is the slippery slope you've, you've, got, you, you've, you've traveled to. You don't want to be there. Move back to sound doctrine. Nourished on the words of faith, which you've been following. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for only old women. On the other hand, disciple yourself, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So Paul says, Timothy, you're going to be running against the current here. The current is already going this direction. Their consciences are scarred. They're cauterized. They don't have unfeigned faith because verse 2 says they speak lies and hypocrisy. And so chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, is a direct contrast to the right and proper goals of verse 5. See? That's why he starts early and says, this is where you want to be, because what's going to happen later is people are going to turn away, and they're going to go down this path. So these lying hypocrites are impure, defiled men with a defiled conscience, and have turned from the right goal of love, and they've made their own goal, and their own pleasure, and their own gain. That's what they want. And we can see this throughout the New Testament, and we can still point it out pretty easily today. The characteristic bottom line goal of false teachers is to master themselves people and money for their own gain. 
The motives are all wrong, and of course their teaching brings the opposite of love for God and love and for fellow men because it's all built on love of self, and that's what they produce in their people too. I think that's so clear. If you look forward to 1 Timothy chapter 6, look there if you would. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen. But uh, look, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, see where we are, verse 3. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. Verse 4, he's conceited, understands nothing, has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth who suppress that godliness as means of gain. We're going to get to all this, but see, this is what's going on in the church. This is what's going on in Ephesus, and Timothy has to deal with it. It still goes on today in modern churches. And it describes the men in Ephesus that Timothy would have to deal with. It describes false teachers today and the incredible, unmitigated pride of rejecting sound doctrine, even the clear words of Jesus. Can you imagine? It's not hard to, of course, to imagine a church that rejects the clear teaching of the Word of God. You don't have to go very far online to find that, do you? And, and here's the thing. I don't think there's a clearer example, and there are many, okay? This is for free. I don't think there's a clearer example of a church in rebellion to Christ's words than the astonishing push to ordain women and put them in the pulpit. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any example more flagrant of a complete disregard for the te- clear teaching of the Word of God than this just unimaginable at this point push to ordain women and put them in the pulpit. And we're going to see Paul address this in 1 Timothy 2. And he addressed it, and we looked at it already in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you're going to serve the church as a steward, you're responding to the call of God, which should be a humbling situation. And if you think about the examples we have from the Scripture of those who are called into the ministry, it is a humbling situation. And to just reject sound teaching is a rebellious act by men and women who know neither of those things, stewardship or sound teaching. They're just in the office for their own preeminence. And these guys Timothy is having to deal with are just on this ego trip. There are people who are humbly compelled to preach and rely solely on the Word of God. They've got their own agenda, and it's pride-seeking prestige. That's what it is. And that still describes a lot of what goes on today in the name of preaching. Now let's look at our next section, if you would, and go as far as we can go in the time we have left. We're almost out of time. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Look at verse 8, if you would. Law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the holy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, now, why is Paul doing this? Well, knowing Paul and knowing false teachers, this response is what we would expect. Look at verse 8. We know that the law is good. Now, That's to say, it's a common understanding of faithful teachers that the law is good. It's beneficial if it's used in the manner that God intended for it to be used. And as we can see, he's going to apply the correct understanding to the disaster of the teachers of false doctrine. So they've got it all wrong. It's all completely messed up. So Paul's got to address it. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because there's no point in pointing out false teaching unless you can identify it and then say, okay, what has to happen to correct it? 
And, and this is some of the hard part of having discernment to realize something is false and be able to correct that understanding. So Paul wants to defend the law because the tragedy in the church, see, is that false teacher's mouth, inside that mouth, the word is corrupted and adulterated. So it's not coming out correctly, and the understanding then is skewed. And this is our 10th principle, and you'll have to just write it down of, of discernment, a difficulty of dealing with bad doctrine. Here it is. You can just sum this up. Unless you're careful, when you throw away the false teacher, you can wind up losing confidence in the word that he spoke. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm going to give you some examples. I think you'll be able to track right away with it. Because some of the words that he spoke may have been true when the scripture was truly represented. And that can just get lumped in with all the nonsense that comes along in the name of preaching. So some of the stuff is right. I mean, if you listen to some of these guys, they'll say something right every now and then. But it's all lumped in with all this foolish teaching and vain speaking and wrangling and jazzing it up and simplifying it and making it say whatever you want, launching off of it, whatever you put in there. But some of it's going to be right and a lot of it's going to be wrong. And so what ends up happening is you just throw the whole thing out. See, So he says, we know the law is good. And by condemning one who wants to be a teacher of the law and how they taught it, we're not condemning the law itself. And as we pointed out previously, for instance, when we've gone through verse by verse on giving or uh, as we were in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 and 9 or, or when we uh, have taught on the Holy Spirit or, or on future things, uh, there are so many things that are false out there and so much false teaching and so much abuse that you have to point out that people do and so many people have been defrauded and abused and taken advantage of and confused on all these kinds of things. And we've talked about this as we've gone through these doctrines. There's a lot of people who've been defrauded, a lot of people who've been abused, taken advantage of, confused. And that happens when you depart from sound doctrine and you just kind of teach whatever you want to teach. It just confuses the whole thing. And so then when a faithful teacher comes along and you come to that passage that gets abused so many times, teaching through the letter, you kind of feel dirty from all the garbage that gets said in the name of preaching concerning those passages. And the church can get jaded and worn out. And the tendency can be you just want to throw the whole thing out because, here it is, there must not be a correct way to teach it and respond to it appropriately because there's just so many variants. Right? So the church just kind of tosses the whole thing. It happens with the, with the book of Revelation a lot, doesn't it? I mean, the book of Revelation is made to be understood literally and it's correct contents and, uh, context. And when you teach it that way, there's no way that you can mess that up. But people have messed it up so long and, and church dogma has messed it up for so long, people just think, well, there's no way we can possibly understand it. We can not possibly understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the modern-day church. How can we? Because there's so much false teaching out there. So we, we just throw the whole thing out, right? We can't possibly understand the correct way to give because so many false teachers have manipulated that whole thing to enrich themselves. And so you go through the passage, and you're just kind of waiting in the mud that everybody's created. You're just like, I'm really sorry. This is really muddy, and I don't mean for it to be. This is the, this is the same idea that Paul's having. It's like they, they picked and, they're picking and choosing out of the law. They're saying you do this and you need to do this and you need to do this. And Paul said, that's all wrong, but the law is not wrong. Just the way they're approaching it, see. And so, you know, you come, wrong, uh, come along and you teach it correctly. You've got to apologize for teaching it. Because it can, we can and it can get lumped in with all the nonsense that comes along in the name of preaching. And so we come back to Paul's issue here and the misuse, misuse of the law. And it works the same way, see. 
Number one, he has to condemn the appalling approach to teaching. That's the first thing. This is just ridiculous, he says. Don't do this anymore. You can't freelance this. You don't get to jazz it up however you want. Stop both of those things. Tell Timothy, don't do any of those things. Tossed out two guys who wouldn't change. Secondly, you've got to point out the motive behind this apparent ignorance of the real meaning and application of the passage. Why? Because false teachers are all about themselves, about preeminence, and about looking good, and coming across as right, being recognized, and all the stuff we just got through saying. So realize that's the motive, okay? And that exasperating confidence they bring with all of that. But he also understands that in doing that, the whole concept can get tossed out as unknowable. So he says, verse 8, look at verse 8. But we know... He says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the law has a right place, but they're not using it correctly. They're picking and choosing and putting stuff together as a means of spirituality, as a means of even salvation. And of course, they set themselves up as the harbinger and the standard of all that and attaining spirituality by outward means is always very attractive to moral people and to legalistic people. Don't do this and don't do that. Don't eat this and don't do that. Make sure you do these things, right? And it strokes the egos of those who are delving deep, right? Supposedly into the law and finding these hidden things. We want to make sure everybody understands these things so they can have this deeper life. So in their pride, see, as they're carried away along by this doctrine of demons, they've developed an approach to spirituality and holiness that isn't either one. And, and these are some of the common approaches to which the church needs discernment. You know, they come across as you don't need grace, you don't need to deny yourself, you don't need to repent in meekness and fear and humility and brokenness. See, this is all, this is all false doctrine constantly. It not, if not directly taught, it's implied. If you're truly spiritual, you'll have God's material blessing, you'll have real holiness, will come by a deeper knowledge that you can find as you dig in with me. See, so Paul just sets the whole thing straight and their followers with them because he just can't leave this here because it wrecks havoc on sound Bible teaching and, and the administration of the church and how it's supposed to be carried out. Look at verse 8. But we know that the law is good. Paul says, if one uses it lawfully. Now look at verse 9. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. So, here's the question. What's the intent of the law as we see Paul's illustration? The law is made to what? It's in your notes. Condemn. The law is made to condemn. The law is, look at the next part of verse 8. For those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. Verse 9, rather. The law is made to condemn, and it's made for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners. Mark this. Paul says, the law is good, but the law by itself is not good news. Okay? The law doesn't hold secrets to a deeper life. The law isn't a means for spirituality. The law alone is bad news. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. You can turn there. I'm going to read it to you for time. Paul says to the, sends his letter to the church in Rome. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul says, listen, if you use the law correctly, all the law does is condemn everyone. And in that respect, the law is good. In the respect that the law is from God, it's very good. And that's how Paul says you use it lawfully for, 
for the law to have its proper effect, it must be used in accordance with its intent. As we close for today, this is just the first stop as Paul faces this redefining of the meanings and intents of Scripture, this alteration of understanding, if you will, either because there's a hidden meaning in the law that leads to holiness and spirituality or our modern alteration of it. We can't possibly know the mind of the eternal God so we can't truly understand what he intends in the Bible. See, Either way, it makes the Bible meaningless. And in that place, what comes along? Foolish teaching, vain words. See, If you can't possibly understand what the Bible says, then the, the false teacher will gladly fill in the gaps for you, intentional. So that leads to a de-emphasis on inerrancy and infallibility and a watered-down version of how salvation works, and it throws into question the purpose of every believer on earth, doesn't it? What's your real purpose? Is it for God to satisfy your every need and desire, for God to make you wealthy, for God to provide everything that you want because you can claim those things, Right? Is that the purpose of every believer on earth? And is that how those things are attained? See, like Ephesus, the church decays from the inside when we're not clear on doctrine. And you don't have to make anything up. You just teach it through verse by verse. You have the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. We both have the same book. And we walk through there and we see what God expects. What's the, what's the reason why 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy were written? That people will know how to conduct themselves in the household of God. It's very clearly stated. What are we supposed to do in the household of God? This. And so as we work through verse by verse, it's not, it's, it's not myster- mysterious. First, take Timothy and Titus. There's a lot of important issues dealt with. And we're going to see church discipline. We're going to see qualification for its leaders. We're going to see male and female roles. And the passages are given to define the church. We don't get to freelance that. And we're going to see next time that Paul even has, has to define what lawlessness is. Isn't that important? It, it's important because they've been picking and choosing the, out of the law and using it incorrectly. So he even has to define what lawlessness is. If that isn't appropriate for today, I don't know what is. Right? Don't we have to define what lawlessness is anymore to our culture? What sinfulness is? What wickedness is? Because wickedness is called good. And good is called wickedness all the time. And those who oppose these kinds of wicked things that God has said to not participate in, we're the ones who are the problem. Passage, the definition of those things is so important today. He says, um, lawlessness and rebelliousness and ungodliness and sinners, unholy and profane. What do those look like? Look at the rest of the passage. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, Immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. It's not even an exhaustive list, but he just makes sure that they understood that those are part of it. So, beloved, as we close, we can never sell doctrine short. False doctrine produces controversies and strife. It's wranglings, confusion, snobbishness, empty talk, bring about unkindness, distrust, rebellion, apostasy, self-centeredness. We don't get love from a pure heart. We don't get a good conscience. We don't get a sincere faith. You get other things all centered around us. Sound doctrine produces love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And so we work our way through verse by verse so we can know what the Lord intends for us to know. All right? That closes our time out today. We're out of time. I'd like you to bow with me, if you would, a few announcements, and we'll be done. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're grateful for 
the fellowship we have as saints for the love of your word that we have for the love of fellowship, for the love of the great commission and the great commandment. We're going to give our lives to see those things accomplished. And Lord, we thank you that um, we desire to be about that. Help us to walk more closely with you as we go. As we're in your word, let it purge us and cleanse us, wash us, reveal the faulty parts and put the new parts in. And Father, I thank you that um, your word is clear and so applicable today. Give us discernment as we understand what it says. Help us to exclude those kinds of things from our lives that uh, do not produce the administration of the church, which is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We pray all these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.